Well, today we're going to look at God's closing argument. You know, we have been looking at the journey of Jesus' life in this last six weeks. We've specifically looked at evidence for his resurrection. And today we're going to hear about the ascension. And the ascension of Jesus into heaven is the final closing argument from God saying, this is the Messiah. This is who I sent. And yet if you watch most movies, the Jesus movie or the Passion or others, Passion doesn't cover it, but um, you have this idea in the Jesus films that Jesus died, he raised, grabs his disciples, road to Emmaus, here I am, walks over to a mountain, whoop, and immediately says, go make disciples. And it all happens like that. But what we're going to find today is Jesus is with his disciples for 40 days before he ascends. And during those 40 days, he takes them on a zigzag pattern all over the world, all over the, the nation of Israel. Why? It's not just up and out. It's a zigzag. Number two, why is the ascension important? I've heard a lot of sermons on crucifixion. I've heard a lot of sermons on resurrection. I don't think I've ever heard or given a message on the ascension and what in the world it has to do with our everyday living, except it's good to have him back up there. So today we're going to look at what does the ascension mean theologically and what does it mean practically for you and I that the ascension is where we get the power to live the Christian life. Now, let's begin with this idea of this zigzag. Let me kind of track you through the four different gospels because Luke, if you just read Luke, it looks like just up Emmaus and out, he's out of here. So I'm going to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to show you the different patterns and zigzags that Jesus takes his disciples on. It begins here in Luke 24. So Jesus is on the road to Emmaus here in the area of Jerusalem. So down here in Jerusalem. And sure enough, that very hour they returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed. And they appeared to Simon. So now... Next thing, when you sing up the Gospels, you find yourself in Matthew. A few chapters earlier in Matthew and Mark, Jesus said, Hey, I'll meet you guys in Galilee, which is on the north section by the Sea of Galilee, not Jerusalem, down by the Dead Sea. Huh. So he tells them he'll meet them in Galilee. And in John 21, he does meet them in Galilee. After these things, Jesus showed himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias up in Galilee. All right. Then what? Then we find out in Matthew, he took them away from Galilee to a mountain. All right? Oh, that must be the mountain he ascends from and does the whole, you know, go make disciples thing. No. Then he takes them all the way back down south to where he began in Bethany. And he led them as far as Bethany. And then he returned to, he ascends to heaven. And they return to Jerusalem right next to Bethany with great joy. Okay, so why is he doing that? And we know from other references that he doesn't actually ascend in Bethany. He actually ascends in Mount of Olives, which is 1.6 miles away. So it's this big, giant loop. You ever felt like God has taken you on a big, giant loop? Like, what is that? If we, we just want to start here, why didn't we stay here? Why are we? No, I didn't want to turn that. I'll go up, th- down. Why in the world is Jesus taking them on such a zigzag during that 40 days? Secondly, what's the ascension all about anyway? Our key verse here today is that he leads them in Luke to Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he was blessing them that he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. 
and they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And I want you to have the great joy of the ascension this morning as we begin to understand it. So first, kind of preliminary on the ascension, it's not just a change of location. So in one sense, God used to be located in heaven. He came and burst onto earth. And when he did that, he had to empty himself of certain full expressions of his Godhead. Now, he was fully God, but for the time on earth, he was no longer omnipresent, for example. Jesus was not omnipresent. He was in one place at one time. So it was a change of location, but also an emptying of himself of certain godly attributes. So when he returned to heaven, one of the things it is is a change of location, but that's not the main one. Second thing, he's able to put on the full expression of who he is. He can now be omnipresent again, thus send his Holy Spirit to be in each and every one of us. Jesus can be our teacher, can live in all of our hearts, be a deposit in all of us, because he's ascended and put on back the full Godhead of his omnipresence. So it's really a magnification of his work. When he gets up into heaven, it's a magnification that he's been on earth, but it's a reminder that he reigns over all the earth and all the galaxies and everything. So that's a little bit what the ascension's about. We'll get to practically what that means. But don't think of it as a change of location as much as a magnification that he is the king, that he is over the dominion of all the universe. Now, with that in mind, we're going to look at two things. One, where Jesus worked in the past is going to be critical to understanding the zigzag. Because God knows that when you, when you remember how, how and where he worked in the past, you can have confidence of where he'll work in the future. And when you face the future, there can be confusion, there can be the unknown, there can be worries, there can be I'm not sure's. And it can bring a lot of anxiety into you versus joy. So Jesus is going to retrack his footsteps with the disciples of where he's worked in the past and the lessons they maybe should have picked up so that they can have confidence of where he's going to work in the future. So let's follow that zigzag together and see if we can understand it. As we dialogue together, remembering where God worked in the past gives you an incredible blessing to be blessed by God. Yet most of us don't take time to reflect on that in our own lives, let alone in the scriptures. So we'll start by reflecting on the scriptures, and I hope it'll apply to your life as well. Let's remember where God has worked in the past. So again, Jesus in Matthew and Mark said, hey guys, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Now, when we find them in Galilee, it's not like they are obeying Jesus. Like, oh, remember Jesus said go to Galilee, let's head to Galilee. Now, when they're in Galilee in John 21, they're casting their nets after two resurrection appearances of Jesus because they've given up on the Jesus mission. I guess it's all over. We'll go back fishing. So they have basically given up on the mission, given up on the directive, and they're back to their old lifestyle. Jesus knew in advance they would not just deny him, not just betray him, but the whole disciple as a whole would actually not accomplish the mission. So he told them in advance, I'm going to go before you. And I love that phrase, before you. While they're on their way to give up on him, he has already got there in advance in preparation. So if you've broken your own promises, if you've failed your own expectations, if you feel like you haven't lived up to what God hoped for you, he knew in advance, and he's already going to meet you in your fear, anxiety, and denial. And when he arrives, it's pretty amazing what happens in John 21. He gets there. Again, he meets the disciples. And notice the word again. 
Jesus is going to like a fast-forward movie. He's going to relive their three years in the next 40 days. Where did I first meet you guys? Oh, here at the Sea of Galilee. And your fishing wasn't really working, so I told you, throw it on the other side of the boat. And you're like, oh, I've never caught so many fish. He's rediscovering and resetting the stage for exactly what happened when he first called them. Now keep in mind that when he meets them here fishing, it says he showed himself to them, and this was the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples. Which means the first resurrection appearance didn't take. The second resurrection appearance didn't take. It's the third time when he meets them where he first met them that they go, wow, and something's going to happen here as Jesus begins to revisit how he worked in the past by recalling them the way he first called them. So, it's Jesus. He makes them a little fish. It's pretty awesome and resurrected body third time. And then it's like, okay, now it's ascension time. No. Now he heads them north. And they get north and it says, the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain. What in the world is the mountain? Oh, that's got to be that mountain he ascends. And if you were reading Matthew, you would think it would be. Because it says, remember they're up near Galilee. Here's Jerusalem down here. We're in a mountain near Galilee. There's a mountain up here called Mount Hermon. Near the mountain, Jesus had appointed for them. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things what we know is a great commandment. And you would think, oh, that's where he ascends, because that's where Matthew leaves the account. But he's in Galilee. He's not in Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives. What did we learn in Luke about a year ago about Mount Hermon? Chet, I don't know. I barely know what you said last week, quite frankly. <laughs> Mount Hermon was the location I built the case for is where Jesus was transfigured before his disciples. That mountain. He takes them back to the mountain. He appointed them and says, guys, remember what happened here? I opened a portal between time and space and I revealed you the full extent of vision of who I am as God himself. Oh yeah, I remember that. Well, now that you've seen me die and raise and standing before you, my resurrected body, guys, listen to these words now. Imagine at the same location as the transfiguration as he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And now as I go and I'm going to ascend to heaven, not from this location, but I'm going to ascend to heaven, you are my ambassadors. You are going to represent my kingdom. Go, therefore, this is your mission, to be the representatives of the king. You've seen my authority on heaven and earth, and I give that authority to you to teach, to baptize, and to tell people that the God who made them has come to earth and revealed himself with evidence that he is who he says he was. Whew. That'd be a good time to ascend. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. He then takes them to Bethany. Why Bethany? Remember, he's going over the highlights of their three years to remember how he's worked in the past to make sure they get the lesson. What happened in Bethany if you jump back with us six months or 18 months? Chad, I still don't know what happened six months ago. I barely remember something. Bethany, Bethany. Lazarus was raised from the dead in Bethany. He takes them to Bethany. 
stands probably by the very tomb where he raised Lazarus from the dead. When they were all confused, what's going on? Why'd you take so long? Why aren't you here yet? My goodness. And in the middle of all that confusion, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Yeah, yeah, I know, be, we'll be raised eventually. Not just eventually. And it's here, standing in Bethany, that he blessed them. Now it mentions he was parted from them and carried up to heaven, but that's 1.6 miles away. So he's going to bless them for 1.6 miles as he makes his way to the Mount of Olives. I want you to imagine you're standing at the tomb of Lazarus. And hear Jesus speaking to you today, like he might have spoken to the disciples. And he says, I know you've made some mistakes. I know you've given in to fear and doubt. I know you've denied me at times, run away from me at times. But I no longer call you disciples. I call you my friend. And despite how you've given in to temptation, that's why I died for you. Because I love you. You may not always feel like you fit in. You've been made unique. You always feel like you're kind of a maverick the way you've done it. I made you so unique and gave you gifts and talents. And I am proud of you. And I love you. And I am delighted to call you my friend. That's what Jesus would say to you. Maybe you've never had a boss, a father, the belief that God would say that to you. But that's what God was saying to his disciples and what he wants to say to you. He wants to bless you for who you are. And he wants us to do the same. In fact, we kind of have a family tradition. We certainly got lots of dysfunction in our family because we got, you know, I'm in the family. So, um, <laughs> but one of the things we try and do is find moments to bless each other. So recently we had one of those. Javen had just turned 20, and so I got these big letters for two and zero, and we passed them around for sister and brother-in-law and my grandparents, my parents and I, and, and so we just had a moment where I passed out different character qualities and different pens, and we wrote, each of us wrote three character qualities of things we recognize in Javen that, that we love about him and care about him, and, and so we just kind of put him in the room, and we just each said one of those character qualities and wrote it onto these big white two zero and just told him how much, how proud we were of him, how much we loved him, how much we cared for him. We, we were blessing him. And look for opportunities to bless people. We, we're not blessed enough. We're not encouraged enough. We're not affirmed enough by the people around us. Because there's plenty of time we're always, you know, critiquing each other and all that. But make sure we bless one another because it's, it's powerful when you know the God of the universe wants to bless you. Then he takes them 1.6 miles of blessing to Mount of Olives. And Mount of Olives is pretty critical uh, for the Old Testament as well. Like, why is the Mount of Olives such a big deal? Why would he choose here to be the place that he was going to send? Well, because in the book of Zechariah is a prophecy about the Mount of Olives related to what we would call the second coming, what the Jews are looking forward to as the first coming. So here's what the Mount of Olives would have looked like in its day, the topography of it. You'll see just up in the top right corner in yellow is the Mount of Olives. So it's right next to Jerusalem, here in the Mount of Olives. And here's what it says in Zechariah. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one. So the Mount of Olives is the place that when all of the nations come against Israel, God will come upon the earth and will recognize not just his kingdom in heaven, but his kingdom on earth. So this is a very significant place that Jesus is going to ascend from because he says he's going to return in the same way to the same location to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem and ever been to the Mount of Olives, it's actually a pretty stunning view. This is the Mount of Olives. Isn't that beautiful? 
But you notice something about the Mount of Olives. Where's the olives? <laughs> like that, like why did they call it the Mount of Olives? I always thought it was like a name for something. What was it? originally called the Mount of Olives because it was a mount of olive trees. Now it's like, well, what is that? Pebbles? Rocks? Stone caskets. Mount of Olives is covered with stone caskets. Because in the Jewish tradition, the reason you want to be on the Mount of Olives is because when the Messiah does come, the first, so the first place you want to be is where that Zechariah prophecy is, so that you'll be the first to be resurrected. And so you want to be at that location, so when the Messiah comes, you'll be the first to resurrection. Many people who would be followers of Jesus, not a lot there, but would be buried there for the same reason. I want to be there so when the dead in Christ will rise first, when he returns in the rapture. In fact, if you look at the top left corner, if you go visit the Mount of Olives today, you'll see lots and lots of these concrete casket cemetery um, areas around there. And families will come and take a rock and place it on top of that casket. And in doing so, they're saying to father, grandmother, great-grandfather, you built a rock foundation for our family, and I'm going to place a rock because I'm building my life on what you started for us. So it was a powerful example of a fulfilled prophecy. So again, before we move on to the second point, the reason Jesus, I think, took them on the zigzag is he took them on a highlights tour of their time together to remind them of who he was, transfigured, who he was, the resurrection, to make sure they knew they had full authority given unto them to go and make disciples and to remind them how he had worked in the past, even during confusion and during fear and uncertainty, so they could be confident of what he would do in the future. So let's look at the future. Now that we're at the Mount of Olives, the future prophecy, what do we learn about the future? Well, returning to where he will work in the future brings great joy. Look at the joy that comes out of them, the confidence that comes out of them at the ascension. He blessed them, and he was parted from them and carried up to heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Seeing Jesus carried up to heaven brought them great joy, even more than the resurrection. He has ascended to the heaven. God saying, this is it. This is my king. Final closing arguments. This is the one you're to follow. And he was the king and I'm going to put him back on the throne. I'm going to magnify his kingdom to what it really is, the full universe. I'm going to magnify his work. And because of that, his spirit's going to live in you. That you have the power to be his witness. And be seated at the right hand. This is where all the promises come. I told you I'm going to get practical here at the end. When they realized what it meant for him to be ascended, they suddenly knew what that meant for their life as well. What do I mean? Let's talk about the Roman world, for example. Ascension was critical to understanding how the Romans understood authority and power. When Titus, Emperor Titus died, his brother, Domitian, wasn't quite as popular. So one of the ways he kind of tried to hook onto his brother's Popularity is he built the Arch of Titus. You've probably seen it if you've been in Europe. I'm going to give you one more verse. So Jesus also had said, God, I want you to glorify me before the world in the book of John. And so in doing so, the ascension is, is God glorifying his son with a final exclamation point that you should follow him. Okay, so keep that in mind as we look here at what happened in the Roman world. Emperor Titus was deified. He wasn't just an emperor, he was God. And the way they showed this is they built this 
incredible arch, which you've probably seen. But if you never walked under the arch and looked straight up, you'll see right in the center, in the middle, is Titus on an eagle. I'll zoom in on it. So you can see Titus riding on this eagle, and the eagle is symbol of he got ascended into the heavens. An eagle took him to heaven, and now in heaven he reigns on high. Proof that he was a good man, proof that he is now deified, proof that he's now God. So the ascension, ascending to the final complete throne, was communicating to those still on earth, he is the king, and we are subjects of the king, and he is exactly what we thought he was. So what the Romans did in myth, Jesus did in reality by God ascending him into heaven. That we would know for sure that he sits at the right hand of God and occasionally even stands at the right hand of God, which we'll get to in a moment. Okay, with that in mind, we're going to get practical. I'm going to try and play this out in a way that you can figure out how it applies to your life. And I'm going to jump to Colossians because Colossians does a great job of extrapolating this. What was it like if you and I understand the ascension that you and I can live like we're above it all? Now, what do I mean? Well, first you have to understand that what happened in Jesus' story is not a story, it's not a myth, it's actually part of history. These are real accounts and real evidence. And what the disciples record, our manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence, how it changed the world, these are real, true realities. In fact, there's a cryptic deist, not a believer in Jesus and God, but a historian named Dale Allison. He wrote a book called The Resurrecting Jesus. He doesn't want and doesn't believe in Jesus the way you and I do. But as a historian, he said, when I look at the evidence for Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, I got to say the evidence supports that he did raise from the dead. Here's how he says it. He calls himself a cryptic deist. I agree with Jacob Shalos. Indications are not lacking which permit the historian to conclude that tradition of the discovery of the open and empty tomb is historically likely. And one will do so with great hesitation. Because I don't want to believe it, but the facts are he died and was raised. The facts are he appeared to his disciples. The facts are they saw this and all died for it. So if that's true, how do we live like we're above it all? Above doubt, above the law, and above spiritual forces. Let's start with doubt. In Colossians, he says, not only was Jesus ascended on high, but you were raised with him. So you were resurrected with him, and you are ascended with him. What? Let's go to Romans for a second. You are not only children of God, but you are heirs joint heirs with Christ. So when Christ ascends on high and gets put back in position of power at the right hand of God, you're a joint heir connected with him in ascension, and therefore it is the guarantee of all the riches of glory are yours in Christ. And though on this earth, everything you have, rust and moth can touch, the ascension is the guarantee that you have access to full airship with your heavenly Father who's on the throne. So you have access to his forgiveness, you have access to his power, you have access to his riches because you're joined with Christ in the ascension. Who raised him from the dead, you too have been raised from the dead. And so here's what it means to be a Christian. Here's the gospel message. At some point in your life you were born. At some point in your life you will die. And along the way, you're going to make a decision. 
or you don't make a decision will be a decision. Will I believe Jesus is my forgiver and leader? Let's just pick that. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30, maybe it's 40 years old. You decide, Jesus, I believe you died and rose. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask you to put that deposit of your spirit in me now that you're omnipresent. At that moment, in Christ, though you're still living on this earth, you are positioned at that moment in Christ. You are in the heavenlies with him. God sees you as if you're his co-heir in Christ, forgiven of everything, past, present, and future. And the ascension is critical to understanding your position in Christ. And now the way you live as a Christian is not try harder. Like, you know, God you know, bet a lot of money on me. He put a lot of deposit on me. I've got to try harder to make up for this. I've got to prove him right. Now, that's, that's religion attached to the gospel. The gospel is because I'm now positioned in Christ and, and I'm above doubt. I don't doubt that he did this. I know that he did this. I look at how he sees me. Fully forgiven. Saint Chad. Did you know the Bible says you're a saint? A saint if you believe in Jesus. I don't act like a saint. That's right, you don't. But when you see that though you don't, he still sees you as a saint, it's the power of that justification in your ascension with him that motivates you to actually live the life. I want to live the way he made me at my conversion. My justification derives my sanctification. Because I'm ascended with him. So I live above doubt. In fact, Jesus will go on and say that even the least of these disciples, the least of these followers of Jesus, the least of you will be greater than John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was one of the greatest prophets of all time. How in the world could you and I be the least, be better than John the Baptist? Because of the ascension. See, John only knew what John knew. And you might feel like, I'm not a great Christian. I'm not a real consistent Christian. I'm not a very knowledgeable Christian. And you're right on a bell curve, like, one of us here has got to be the dumbest, right? <laughs> one of us has got to be the worst Christian, the littlest Christian, the, the, not, the, the, the didn't quite make the cut Christian, or barely made the cut. And yet Jesus says, you, who don't feel like you make the cut, who don't feel like you've lived the right life, who made a lot of mistakes and denied and given up on Jesus, you are greater than John the Baptist. Not that you're more articulate. Not that you're a better preacher. How could you be the greatest? Because you have the gospel. You can communicate what he didn't. Did you know in Jesus, everything I've ever done died with Christ? Did you know because of in Jesus, I have his resurrected spirit living in me? Did you know because of what Jesus did, I am now positioned on high and I have full access to all the resources of God and, and, and that whatever I have in my life cannot be taken away, the real eternal treasures I have? That's the gospel. And that's why you can be the greatest. You can be a witness to all people to go and make nations, to, to go and tell all nations about him because you have this, this message, not of like, I've lived a great life, but God lived a great life for me. That's the gospel. And that's why we do what we do as a church. It's not like, well, you know, I got nothing to do on Saturday night or Sunday. We ought to probably have a gathering and probably play some music and maybe open up that (coughs) old book and maybe read it a little bit. No! We have the most powerful message in the universe, and even the least of us can be a witness to that to tell people you can be forgiven. You don't have to live under a big blanket of, of, of guilt and shame and condemnation your whole life as so many people do. That's the power of the gospel. It's one of the reasons we have eight services coming up for Christmas Eve. It's not like, well, I got nothing going on on Christmas Eve. Can we maybe schedule something at the church? Like maybe 
nine hours or ten hours with rehearsal. No, it's because you and I are going to serve. You and I are going to give. You and I are going to write checks at the end of this year to what God's doing here at Horizon and what God's doing here in the world. And you and I are going to say, how can I help out to greet somebody who's coming with their family or friends? Why? Because we believe the gospel really happened. And we're going to live above the doubt that so many people are in doubt and guilt and shame. All right, I got to go on. So that's doubt. Two, we can live above the law. And this is the beauty of the ascension. He goes on to describe this in Colossians. You also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. He made you alive with him, there's the resurrection, having forgiven you all trespasses, all of them, wiping out the handwriting of requirements that were against us. Your relationship with the law can finally be changed because of the ascension. You're now raised above the handwriting requirements of the law. So let's explain that for a second. The law is not bad. The law is good. Be kind. Don't be so critical. Be joyful. Be generous. Don't be arrogant. Don't put yourself in the place of God. Those are good things. So try and live up to those things for a day. Just a day. 24 hours. Try and be fully loving, fully giving, fully merciful, fully compassionate. And one of two things will happen. One, you'll come to the end of your day and say, I did it. And we'll talk to the people around you like, he thinks he did it, he didn't do it. So it'll, the law will create conceit because you think you did it and you didn't. You just lowered the, the standard of what it means to, to follow the golden rule so you feel like you did it. Or if you're really honest about yourself, you'll be under incredible crushing shame because you couldn't even keep the law for one 24-hour period of time. You couldn't give other people the benefit of the doubt the way you give yourself the benefit of the doubt. You couldn't even do it one day. Crush, crush, crush. But if you have been forgiven all your trespasses and if the handwriting requirements of the law that you're over that Because Jesus qualified you in all those pieces. Your relationship to the law can change. It's still good, but all it does is bring out what's bad in me. The law cannot produce righteousness. So instead you say, because I'm ascended with Christ, and he sees me as fully forgiven, and the law is good, God, I need your fruit of your spirit to come in me and manifest your goodness, your compassion, your gentleness. And then the days you do it well, you don't go, wow, I did it. You go, wow. God did it. God is breathing life into me. And when you find dead spots, you're not crushed by it. You're like, whew, something else Jesus already forgave me of. And if you find a dead spot, you're like, need some more resurrection and Holy Spirit breathing into this dead spot. And you become more and more humble, more and more dependent, more and more trusting to him. We had a men's Bible study here on Thursday. I just explained to them, using the analogy of Ezekiel, this idea that when you realize you're positioned in Christ, your relationship to the law changes. And you're able to live the Christian life in a brand new way, powered by the Spirit, not powered by law. And also, when you're positioned in Christ, you don't, well, you do get tempted. You're able to take the good things in this life that become an idol, and you're able to recognize these things will never satisfy, no matter how good they are, power, Approval will never fully satisfy. You need to anchor your identity into something where you're above it all. In fact, Brandon Cook, NFL wide receiver, said exactly that. I love how he says this. I'm playing in this game 
that is the pinnacle of my athletic career. Man, it's high. Talk about I've gotten high, high. And it's supposed to be everything to me. But in the grand scheme of things, it's just a game. You know, I think about Jesus Christ, he says, pointing out that before Jesus even performed any miracles, God said to him, that, this, is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So I live in that What is he living in? He's living in that I am pleasing to God, not based on how I perform today. He's going to have good games? Whoa, bad games? Why don't we fire that guy? Instead of having his identity and his happiness tied to something that's uncertain, he positions it to who he is in Christ because of the ascension being a joint heir with Christ. And you can do the same. Whatever you're tempted to tie your identity to, it's going to have ups and downs. And there are going to be great moments where your idol is blessing you on the way up, but it will curse you on the way down unless you tie your identity to who you are in Christ, fully ascended in Him. That's what he's saying. I know that what he thinks about me, he gives me a gift to play the game, so he's done that for a reason, to play at a high level, to be able to give him glory. So now he can enjoy the game because the game doesn't drive his identity. It's a chance to express the kingdom through his talents and skills. That God's entrusted him. Lastly, we can live above it all because of the spiritual forces. When Jesus died on the cross, the demons, the evil forces of life thought they had him. We got him! There's no way out of this! <laughs> and when he came off the cross, when he raised himself from the dead, it says, having disarmed all principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them he made them embarrass them he made like they don't have any power of me the best they had to throw at me and i just defanged them and detangled them from it all and because of that jesus is positioned in triumph over them and because you and i are joined with him in ascension you too are over them if you position yourself in the ascension that evil forces they don't have to listen to you But they do have to listen to the one who's in you. For greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And this word triumph is very, very key. We're back to this Greek-Roman idea. When you triumph over someone, you march into town with everything you've taken from your enemy. You and I were kidnapped by the evil one. When Jesus went into the grave and took the keys of death, he took us back. He ransomed us back from evil, and he comes to heaven with all of his triumph of what it is that you and I have in Christ. And this, again, is what you see at the arch of, uh, of Titus. You see, Titus, when he came back, had these, tr- in his triumph, his rewards. And here you'll see the menorah. He stole the menorah from the Jewish temple. Look what I got! Paul uses the same word to say, you and I were stolen back from the enemy. And now, the triumph that you and I have when we identify ourselves with Christ is we have his joy and his peace and his mercy. But how do you do that? One of the ways I do that, I would encourage you, take the next 30 days and do this with us as a church. If you go to ransomedheart.com backslash prayer, or just Google ransom heart and prayer, there's like five prayers in there. Uh, John Eldridge does them and his wife. I listen to them when I go to bed at night. And I listen to them and I pray like one word behind it. Or you can read it too, but I actually like just putting the mp3 there and I have John read. And it's a way that you can pray you're identified with his death and, and crucifixion. Everything's dead in Christ. There's a way that he teaches you how to pray, we follow along, how to bring the full resurrection power into your life. 
And then there's a way to take advantage of the full triumph of everything you have in Jesus. Because I want you to have what Stephen had. That when he was being stoned in the book of Acts, he looked up and he saw the ascended Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that ascension gave him so much power in the moment. He was able to forgive his enemies. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was able to surrender into your hands, I commit my spirit. Do you want that kind of joy and power in your life? It comes from fully understanding, fully embracing, fully incorporating through prayer everything you have in Christ. And that's the closing argument for the book of Luke. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glory of the gospel. Thank you for the glory of your work. Thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. As we enter this Thanksgiving, Father, we are so thankful for what you did for us in the past and so thankful for what you're going to do in the future, personally, in our marriages, and in our church. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. See you all next week.